Like many people during lockdown, I finally committed to learning something new that I had been procrastinating for some time. A new language. And that language was Arabic. I struggled through to level two, only to find myself lost and disconnected. I did something I've never done in my entire life of learning and repeated the course. I was so glad I did. While everyone else moved on to a different level, I stayed and had new classmates join me. Those new classmates became my core learning group as time went on and schedules changed. All three of us are still taking classes together today. Thinking about it now, I can't discern which came first for me, the desire to learn the language that kept me going or the community we built around it. I'm Lauren Anders Brown, your host for this episode, and we're going to explore more about this topic with our guest speaker, Jill Nicholson. You're listening to How Humans eLearn, discussing the impact human-connected interactive experiences have on the human capacity to learn. This is a podcast for trainers, educators, learning and development professionals, coaches and mentors, the education technology community, and anyone who wants to leverage new ways to reach lifelong learners and to look at what others in the e-learning industry are doing to make that happen. When creating any curriculum, it's often a chicken and egg question, or if you build an e-learning program, the people will follow. Or is it best to find those people first and build the program around them? With me today, I have Jill Nicholson, who's going to help me learn if there's an answer to this age-old question. Hi, Jill. Hi, Lauren. Jill began her career in learning as a teacher. I think in teaching, there's so many proud moments. And I think a lot of people just assume it's results day um, because that's sadly often how you're measured and what you're judged against. But I definitely think it's more about that journey that you have with your students. And like you say, just kind of seeing them be able to kind of really grasp a concept for the first time or, you know, to think about more details, kind of worldly skills and being able to kind of critique and analyze. So not just kind of recall. So certainly when they start questioning things, I always got really happy just in terms of being like, yeah, they're not just accepting the status quo. She then moved into the humanitarian sector and now is the head of community at Mesa. Jill, could you introduce us to Mesa? Yeah, absolutely. So the Mesa is a tech for good kind of innovative startup. So we were incubated out of IG advisors and the Mesa was created to find sort of new and innovative ways to maximize the potential of donor giving. So donors can achieve greater social impact to support the most underserved populations and causes. So we very much sit at that intersectionality of philanthropy, community building and digital innovation. And we really focus on bringing and harnessing community building approaches into the philanthropy world to help philanthropic communities and their donors connect, grow and give better. And we do this twofold. Um, So we've got both a bespoke community platform, which was designed um, for communities of donors and funders. And as tech is not an end in itself, uh, we work with our partners to incorporate the best community building practices and contextualize for the philanthropic sector to really create inclusive and engaging communities that connect donors um, and inform their programming and just thinking about driving thoughtful and informed action. (laughs) 
So your workload's pretty small, right? Sounds like you don't really do much. Yeah, you know, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got loads of spare time actually to do podcasts. <laughs> no, I mean, I think if anyone has ever donated or considered giving to a philanthropic organization or charity, I mean, we always wonder kind of where our money goes and how it's used and the impact and programming that's having. And your work sounds like you you like to answer those questions. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly work with, working with donor networks who are working with sort of high network, high net worth, sorry, and ultra high net worth individuals. And so really thinking about how to leverage, you know, not just more giving, but better giving. So, you know, thinking about what their philanthropic practices look like. And a lot of these donors are already having a lot of these conversations. You know, times are changing. The way that giving is done is certainly changing from how it was done previously. You know, there's a lot more about trust-based philanthropy, about unrestricted funding. So there's a lot of evolution in the space. And by adding that community approach, we're really adding a really nice peer dimension for these organizations to be, or individuals to be able to navigate their way through this rather than just relying on, you know, one-way sharing, as it were, from the philanthropic communities that they're kind of, or donor networks that they're already a part of. So it's a really exciting time in philanthropy and certainly having a background as well in the charity sector. I just know how important philanthropic money can be, particularly for innovation. And so it's really nice to be a part of that side of it as well. So Jill, in your experience, what are the most effective ways to build community? Oh, absolutely. I'm a soundbite on this. And so anyone that's ever spoken to me about this hears the same things over and over again. Trust is the number one community building principle. People need to feel safe. That's psychologically, emotionally, maybe even physically, you know, before they will start engaging. And it's very, it's difficult to build trust. It's it's quite active, you know, it has to be reaffirmed. You constantly have to do it as you're adding in new people. Um, so that is my number one community building principle. I think a close second, um, you build with and not for. Um, so you may have an objective and you absolutely will and an agenda for creating this. But if your members don't feel the value to them, they won't come back. We often see scope creep of business agendas and communities in general. And then they, the question is, why are members disengaging? But they don't feel their needs are being met. So it's certainly that kind of co-creation exercise that are going into it. So I think as well, community is very human. Um, you can't and you won't know it all. So you have to really lean into that. You know, you are constantly iterating, you're developing, you need that freedom to learn. Um, you need to pilot. Not everything will stick. Things will run their time. That's okay. Not everything's scalable. Um, so those are the kind of things that I like to build my community based on. Um, just working from those kind of key principles and building up from there. They're all very human you know, at the base and the core of them. I think maybe sometimes we just forget that as humans as to kind of go back to the basics, right? Absolutely. And it's I always talk about back to basics because I think they can so easily be forgotten as, you know, technology becomes sexier or like new playbooks and things like that come out. But really, sometimes you just need to go back to people and be like, I'm a bit stuck. How do we want to achieve this together? You know, everyone is part of that community. They don't necessarily see themselves as individuals and being a bit vulnerable, particularly as a community leader, definitely, you know, it, it can make people feel that you are human, that you are, you know, you can be trusted all of those bits and pieces just in the same way as we interact in our everyday lives as well 
That's a really good uh, turning point for my next question. Let's bring technology into the question. Does it matter if these communities are online or in real life? I think each has a very real role to play. And I think online and so digital and physical play into each other. I, I really think it's a continuous cycle um, where they support each other. And I think they actually play slightly different roles and they certainly offer um, different opportunities, I would say, for engagement. Uh, so I'm a big believer in the digital space for democratizing access and uh, um, in a world that's you know, increasingly globalized. This is a really real and valid role, I would say, to play. But you can't downplay the power of in-person interactions. And I think particularly in that kind of post-COVID world that we're in, where people are sort of re-navigating and they really now, you know, we didn't have in-person interaction for such a long time that people is, it's, are thirsty for it. But I think in-person alone, you know, it's less frequent, it's more costly, and it definitely leaves gaps where digital can support. I think great examples of this is around big events or conferences. I personally think there's nothing more frustrating when you leave a conference, you know, you've just started to unpack some really big meaty topics, you've really been in the zone, and you leave, but you know, you're not necessarily connected to those people, you may frantically have been trying to get LinkedIn profiles, but then, you know, you're restarting a conversation it's kind of on a one-to-one -one basis. So having a digital space where you can seamlessly flow and transition, you know, those big topics, those big conversations and just continue that conversation. It's just such a great way of showing, showcasing how they can interface with each other. I think it's less about seeing them as competing spaces, but more about how we can join them together, how they do support each other, you know, in many ways and, and using them to, you know, to support your wider agenda as one rather than thinking of them as separate. Um, so I think technology absolutely has a role to play, you know, community platforms, are huge now that you know lots of people use them there's lots of other ways you know people can build people build slack communities you know there there's um linkedin groups people might even turn to things like whatsapp groups each of them have pros and cons to them but certainly being able to just flow um and to have those spaces available i think it's really supportive um for in person absolutely and definitely for online as well i know that i've attended some online conferences and I'm just the same as being in person. I'm, like you said, adding those people on LinkedIn. Then I have to try and remember what I added them from or, or why we connected. So at times it's, it's easier if there's already kind of one easy way to kind of connect the community and then you remember kind of exactly how you interacted or where they came from because LinkedIn communities end up just keep growing and growing and it's hard to keep track of people, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Slack communities have become a bit, you know, there's people been talking recently, they've been a bit disenchanted with Slack. And the problem is, if lots of people have communities on Slack as well, if people are leaving the platform, they're leaving all of those communities. So I think there's definitely, you know, it's it can be difficult and just the ways that you get notified and certainly different people's preferences of engagement as well. But I think certainly when there's really tailored spaces, you know, and different, you know, follow on groups that are arising from maybe, you 
you know, round tables that have happened or, you know, even people that people weren't necessarily part of those round tables who can jump in and join in the conversation. Because, you know, there's always that thing at conferences as well where there's multiple competing sessions or things mm. that you want to attend and you can't spread yourself out <laughs> in that sense in in the on the day. But certainly online, you can access that afterwards and you can engage that way. And I'm going to be a little controversial here uh, because I know we talk a lot about human connection, but do you think people can retain and learn on their own or do they have to have a community? So humans are social beings. So I do think we can learn in isolation. I mean, there are certainly things we, we do social learning on an everyday basis. I mean, whether we recognize it or not, there's things that we are picking up. But I definitely think to consolidate and to connect to that learning, I think that's where adopting a community approach is much more powerful. So I think just thinking about, you know, the learning pyramid in general and shifting from kind of passive to active learning, that engagement component is incredibly powerful. You know, we as humans, we typically forget 90% of what we process in a month. We need that kind of practice for permanence, as it were. And I think having that community around us, we can interrogate, we can share reflections, we can situ- situationalize um, what are potentially quite conceptual conceptual uh, theory into tangible practice. Um, I do think uh, I do think it's quite an overlooked. Uh, part of learning and I think it's often an add-on rather than an integration to the foundations of learning practice and I think it's a real missed opportunity just in terms of the way that actually brain if you look at brain science and the way that we engage so our like transactional learning to actually supporting someone else to understand the concept will really consolidate it for us so yes we can learn learn independently how much we actively take on and retain of that is a different question. Just like in the same way that you were talking about learning a language. If you learn a language and you don't practice it or you don't utilize it, then, you know, over time you will lose the capacity. You're not immersed in it. Whereas if you are within a group that are learning languages and you're speaking it, that will consolidate your practice. And it, it's the same for other types of learning as well. And following on from that, do you feel as a society we value learning from each other enough Or is the only thing that matters how we learn individually in achievements like degrees or qualifications? Like how can and how can we change either outcome? Yeah, I I definitely think there's still room to grow in this. I think there is a real reliance on quite traditional and what I would classes transactional learning that can be accredited in some kind of way but I do think there's a movement coming and I think actually even maybe potentially stemming from social media on the way that information is now shared you know there's lots of stats and studies around particularly young people engaging with you know how they are learning through TikTok and you know you've got kind of influencers who are actually educators and um, bits and pieces like that I would personally love to see informal learning grow in recognition as I I really think, you know, it deserves the validation as the valuable approach that it is. Um, but I think in terms of, uh, yeah, just that wider base of uh, how people are, how learning is assessed, I would say, um, it is more reliant on quite traditional 
um, qualifications, which often are rote learning in a sense, because it's just recall. It's not all of those kind of interrogation principles or, you know, all of those actual tangible skills that we use kind of in everyday society. Like it's interesting as, you know, as, as a former educator, we often do lots of individual work. But actually, when you come into the workplace, a lot of what you do is cooperative and collaboratory work and teamwork. And we don't necessarily you know, provide those skills and for interaction and, you know, for critical analysis in the same way that we actually apply them into the world today. So we've done a lot of talking about the advantages of community building. Do you have any success stories that you might be able to share that could really kind of convince anyone who ever thought they could learn anything on their own that maybe they should find a community? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I currently run my own community through the Mesa called Collective, and that's made up of donor networks. And the sort of people who are engaging within Collective are really engagers within their organizations. So they don't necessarily identify as being community professionals, but they engage with their donor networks members on a daily basis. You know, they're very high touch interactional. They've got, you know, really great human skills. But Collective is fully remote. So it's a completely digital community because we're global, right? And when we were first doing our initial pilot, I think the members were actually surprised at the value it brought to them because in their day-to-day, they often hear that in-person is much more valued. And I mean, I can go off on tangents forever, but I do think people have not necessarily always had the best of digital experiences. And I think, you know, as we saw through COVID, lots of things were thrown together very rapidly that weren't necessarily quality as people try to pivot very quickly. But I think things are definitely progressing and hybrid's another area which is certainly getting more attention now but I think particularly for a collective just the relationships that they've built in a very short space of time the problems that they've shared and solved and just it's breaking down silos so these are organizations who all work in the same space they might have members who go across multiple organizations but they don't necessarily would engage with with each other on a, a regular basis and I think in terms of just the tangible things that it brings them, you know, it reduces duplicity of time, effort and resources because they share their challenges and their successes. You know, it's that kind of place of ideation and inspiration. And it's a very honest space where people can bring their whole selves and kind of whatever is for going on for them in that moment. So although potentially there might be a world where these organizations are seen, are seen as competitors that's not within this space. They're really kind of there to give and to take um, from the community to enhance their own practice and the work that they're doing in a really tangible way. And I think it's just been such a lovely learning experience for them and just some of the feedback that was coming out of it, just how they could build that and replicate it. Because certainly, you know, people were cautious about digital you know we heard their apprehensions before we went into initially to pilot and now it's a fully fledged community just about well kind of what their expectations were and how they thought it might be able to benefit them and just to see them you know grow within it and actually be part of it and give time to it you know it's it's really nice to see as a community builder um how they've managed to kind of counteract maybe some of their initial expectations through their participation So have you ever seen a digital community fail? Yeah, 
sadly. I mean, uh, it happens. The, the problem about community, and you know, it's just this isn't specific just to digital communities, but there is that mentality of if we build, they will come. And community, it's not that you need a single spark to start the fire. You know, they they need continual um, inputs. They need work. You know, it's people powered. It's like we were talking about at the beginning, those principles of community building. If they're starting to be eroded, then the community starts to break down. And certainly just for different reasons in terms of, you know, either they go through exponential growth and they really lose their kind of root cause or there's just not enough time and energy invested into sustaining them. And, you know, people get very frustrated around uh, particularly digital communities because you can often put a lot out there and it doesn't feel like you're getting a lot back. But there are people engaging with your content and not they might be reading it. They might just not necessarily be actively responding to it. And so I think definitely in that way, um, people can kind of have misconceptions about what that community building journey and sustainability plan would look like. Um, And I think people often think sustainability comes very quickly and you know you put in the upfront effort and then the kind of community members will take it forward and absolutely in some instances that that could be the case I think that's much rarer and I think you just always need to really think about the resourcing from your side as the community owners and managers just to ensure it's the space you know ensure it's meeting people's needs ensure it's adapting and changing as people's needs change and and move forward So Jill, for anyone who's listening to this podcast and who's looking to start their own e-learning community, what are three things that you would take from your own experience to help inspire them? Absolutely. I think build it from outset, like build it into your plan. Don't don't try and you know, I mean, ultimately if you want to create it as you go, you absolutely can. But I think if you've got it rooted from the complete outset it's more likely to be successful if you're managing people's expectations if you're bringing them on early if you're really framing that for them uh, then I think that can be really helpful for putting it center uh, rather than at the side or off (laughs) off the side of everyone's desk I think just framing how you want people to engage you know what is the expectation you know really integrating it into your approach so it's not like oh we're going to do this here and then there's a digital space space there you know how can you weave that bond between the two of these spaces so you can have that conversation continued so it feels fluid so it doesn't feel like it is kind of additional at the site um as it were and i think perseverance i think there is a emotional side to community building as well because it can feel very personal if you put something out there and you don't get much traction back i think definitely thinking just people might really be engaging behind the scenes but they don't necessarily aren't ready to you know comment on things they don't they don't think they've got anything to add to anything at that time but they're processing and they're taking what you say so I think just not taking things personally when there's tumbleweeds because there will be tumbleweeds so I can guarantee, almost guarantee you that um, in terms of some, some things but just certainly relying on the other community members as well just pulling them in just always 
going back to them and asking them like just those back to basics principles you know checking in just making sure they're seeing themselves in it is this what they want you know how could it change and adapt just those kind of things I think are the kind of top three things to set expectations beforehand I think a big part of my job is you know tech is not an end in itself and I often find myself saying that you know because it is that we build and they will come mentality and I think just really knowing what you're trying to achieve from it um, and managing expectations on your side as well will help you set yourself up for success um, rather than overestimating what what you are going to be achieve, able to achieve with the resources that you put in as well. So I think you might agree that bigger isn't always better. Absolutely. I mean, bigger can be such a vanity metric. <laughs> if you've got a hundred people in your community, but you've only got, you know, five people actively engaging, you know, I think you need to ask the questions about what you're trying to achieve in terms of, are you trying to exponentially grow? Is that the number that you're trying to hit? And often that is a a metric, you know, that communities are measured their success by, you know, we've got 7,000 registered members, but actually if you look at the data behind it, there's only actually a couple of hundred that might be engaging at all. Um, And so just really thinking about that. I think often communities, when they start to grow on a huge scale, they can feel less intimate. People's voices can feel like they're getting a little bit more lost. Um, And each community is different. So you have to really think about, you know, what it is in relation to your community, your specific area and what you're trying to achieve. But that intimacy, too few and it can feel quite quiet, too many and it can feel potentially just a bit overwhelming and too buzzy. So just thinking about how you can disaggregate and you can potentially provide other groupings within that as well. But certainly steering away just for numbers for numbers sake. Final question, and I have to ask it. Yeah. It's the chicken and egg question. What do you feel needs to come first? What you learn or who you learn it with? This is so hard and it's hard on so many levels. Okay. Okay, I've got many thoughts on this. So I think there's, yeah, there's things. So there's things that I know that I would want to learn. So like take MOOCs, for example. Um, So um, thinking about, you know, wanting to do a course, um, but wanting that kind of accountability mechanism to it. So great way to achieve in kind of that situation is to build the community around you first so being like I know I'm not going to be able to do this on my own because it's difficult to slot in the time be difficult to allocate it so then collecting it but then there's also learning where you know you're not going to be able to attract anyone to it for potentially cost barriers or whatever um, or thematic areas not of interest and then the community that lies within the, the cohort that you're potentially with in terms of assigned with with the formalized training all right I'm going to structure these thoughts a bit so I find independent learning challenging so I can absolutely learn independently but like we were talking about earlier just that consolidation of learning for me comes from that sharing that discussion afterwards that kind of processing and debating and that's really easier to do with people who are in that same headspace as you so you can absolutely have those conversations with people who are not doing that type of learning with you but you know 
they're potentially lay in that subject area. Um, and there's definitely value in that as well. Again, going back to our lovely learning triangle um, and helping you move along your learning journey, but just being able to engage with people who are in exactly the same kind of um maybe mindset headspace as you on that learning I just find so valuable for me um, to really think about how to take forward my learning and I think that comes from a couple of places one because in formalized learning settings we don't always think about that action plan setting it can very much be conceptual theory and then people are left trainings to really think about how they take that forward themselves and that can feel very big and very scary sometimes and that having that support network around you to kind of interrogate that and break that down can be really helpful but I think as well having that community around you keeps you in that mindset of learning and I think if we're talking about potentially either in-person courses or courses that you allocate a certain amount of time to a week whether that you know if that's digital or not so when you're out of that formal space you're kind of heads out the game a little bit so having that kind of peer community is that nice balance of not being so formalized but still being able to engage with people that are in that moment and time thinking like you are thinking for as well and kind of, as I mentioned, just that accountability mechanisms. So I think learning in cohorts makes people step up. <laughs> I think independent learning, you have to be so dedicated and motivated to see things through. And I think, you know, in terms of MOOCs, like the drop-off rate is exponential. But I mean, I, I don't believe the completion rate of a MOOC is a sign of success. And I think, you know, lots of people will take lots from learning and might not need to complete learning, whether that's MOOC or whether that's a course of any form. However, having people around you makes you feel more dedicated to your learning. So I'm a coach as well. And I definitely see my coaches using our sessions as that kind of accountability mechanism. And it's those same principles. Having a community cohort around you, they become your accountability buddies and they push you forward because you feel like you, you know, are committing to them in some way. You might be doing things together or you might um, join for meetings and, you know, you might have actions to complete in between those sessions as well. So I don't know if I've answered your question yet. (laughs) I think you have. I think I, and I can, you know, it it kind of reminded me of back in um, university when I was at school uh, in Massachusetts and in the US system, we have uh, like prerequisite courses that you have to take for any kind of general degree. And um, generally when you would choose the things that you really didn't like the most, you would choose to do it with the people you liked the most because it would kind of get you through it. So it didn't matter what you were learning. It was the fact that you had someone that you knew that you were learning with that you could hold each other accountable for and kind of get through it. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think sometimes you can't always, you know, choose the people in that sense. You know, it might be that, you know, you then just create that community with your who you're with. So I definitely think who you learn with is just so important um, for the, le- the learning outcomes moving forward. Absolutely. So I think it's the who and not the what, if I had to take anything away from, from your chicken and egg question. Yeah, I'm going to go with it. I might change the lives, but I'm going to go with it just now. <laughs> well, if you'd like to get in touch with us regarding today's episode, previous episodes, or anything else, you can send me an email, lauren at gamoteca.com. 
That's all for this episode on how humans e-learn together, supported by Gamoteca. And until next time.